0: Alright, good morning. That's exciting, man. I love that stuff. Anything that calls us together, that gives us just opportunities to collaborate together as, as Christians here in the community, to be small parts of addressing a big problem, but to be small parts of it together... That's a powerful and amazing thing, and 4Kids is an incredible, uh, amazing organization. We've been involved with them for years and years and years, and deep in relationship with them, love who they are, how they lead, what they do in the city, and Andre's a great guy, so thank you, brother, for for being here. We really appreciate it. All right, well, today we're going to continue a study that we started, as it turns out, seven weeks ago, of Jesus' life, as Mark presents it to us in the Gospel of Mark, and and one of the things that I've said so many times that by now you know what I'm going to say next But if you're new, here we go, is that Mark has a point that he's trying to make. He's got 16 chapters. He spends eight making one point and eight making another. And we're still in the first eight. So in chapter one, he's like, look, I'm going to talk about a lot of things. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus is God. In chapter two, he's like, I'm going to say some other things. Jesus is God. Chapter three, he's God. Four, he's God. Five, he's God. Six, he's God. We've come today to chapter seven. What do you think he's going to say? Jesus is? That was really pretty good. Yeah. He's God, and he's going to do it again in a really creative and amazing way. One of the things that Mark assumes when you come to his book and then read his account of the life of Jesus is that you know the accounts of all the other lives already laid out for you in the Old Testament. You're like, I don't even know what the Old Testament is. The Old Testament is the two-thirds of the Bible that was written before Jesus' life and suffering and death and burial and resurrection from the dead. In other words, it was all the before-Jesus stuff. And Mark is assuming when we get to his account of the life of Jesus that we know what the Old Testament teaches about, for example, what only God can do. Because again and again, Mark is going, hey, look at Jesus because he's doing what only God can do. And in this case, he's reading the human heart. So when we get to Mark chapter 7, for example... Mark is already assuming that you know the book of 1 Samuel, and so therefore you know this story in which God comes to the great prophet Samuel, and he says, Samuel, I want you to go to the reigning king of Israel, his name is King Saul, and here's what I want you to say, I want you to go and go, hey man, which will get his attention, because nobody speaks to a king that way, and then after that, I want you to say two points from the Lord, so point number one. Uh, Your days are numbered and I've chosen your successor and it's not going to be your son and there will be no family dynasty for the the family of Saul. Like I've chosen your successor. Thing number two, uh, I'm not going to give you his name because then you'll try to kill him. I mean, if I was going to give you his name, his name is David, but I'm not going to do that because then you'll try to kill him. But I will describe him for you. He's like six feet five. He's incredibly handsome. He's amazingly intelligent. He's extremely articulate. He has a magnetic personality. Everybody is drawn to this guy like they just, you just, you can't help it. I mean, his leadership gifting is off the charts. It's not what God says at all. Who does that describe if you know the story? It describes Saul. And he's the one that's about to be displaced. God's like, no, no, we've got that. We're going a different direction. And it doesn't mean that David wasn't tall or handsome or brilliant. I mean, look at his life, guys. He has leadership gifting off the charts, but it's the point is that what mattered to God was the heart. So God through Samuel said, just know this. The man that I've chosen to replace you is a man after my own heart. But here's the question. How does God know that? Because God and God alone can gaze infallibly into the human heart. You see how it works? Even the wisest of us cannot do that, as Samuel then illustrates, because three chapters later, what happens? God comes to Samuel again, and he goes, okay, it's time to anoint the next king. He's not going to become the king for several years, but nevertheless, I want you to go anoint him. I'm not going to tell you exactly who it is. He's one of the sons of Jesse. Jesse, by the way, had eight sons, so he's one of the sons of Jesse. I want you to go to the house of Jesse, and then Jesse's going to parade his boys before you, and I'm going to tell you in the moment which one it is. Samuel's like right on. He goes to the house of Jesse. What happens? Verse 6 of Samuel, First Samuel 16. It says that when the sons of Jesse came to be paraded as the idea before Samuel to see which one of them the Lord had chosen, Samuel looked on Eliab, the firstborn, and he thought surely the Lord's anointed is before him because he's like 6'5 and he's incredibly handsome. he's amazingly articulate. And wow, this guy is so intelligent. His leadership gifting is off the charts. Magnetic personality. Like, everybody is just drawn to this guy, you know, like flies to a light. I mean, it's just, it's incredible, okay? He's like, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And by the way, the Lord, who reads our hearts, knows this is what Samuel's thinking. And the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. And then here's the key verse. For the Lord, what? Sees. How? Not as man sees. All right, so then what's the difference? God says, Oh, well, here's the difference. Man looks on the outward appearance, which if you think about it, really is all that we can do. But the Lord, whose gaze is far more penetrating, looks on the heart, which in the Bible is not the blood pumping mechanism in your chest. It's the core of your being. It's the seat of all of your emotions. It's the locus of all of your desires. It's the center of all of your thought processes and of your will. Like your heart, biblically speaking, is the real you. My heart, biblically speaking, is the real me. And here's what we're learning here in the Old Testament part of the Bible that Mark wants us to know. It is that only God can see into the human heart. Now, he wants you to know that because he's making the argument that Jesus is God. And how does he do that? Well, in Mark chapter 7, he has Jesus looking into the human heart. Or really, he just tells us, hey, he's able to do that. And we see him doing that because the Pharisees, who are the adversaries of Jesus... They're the ones who are trying to discredit him and find fault with him and, you know, maybe find fault with him through his disciples in this instance. The Pharisees have stepped forward and they're critical of the disciples of Jesus because the disciples of Jesus don't wash their hands before they eat. And I just want to pause and say this has nothing to do with hygiene. Zero. He's not saying, you know, they should use antibacterial soap. And as we've all learned during the pandemic, they should wash for 30 seconds, which is the longest 30 seconds of the day. I mean, it's like an eternity. That's not what he's talking about. These guys had created a rule of their own. It's not in the Bible. And they said, look, ceremonially, religiously, you need to cleanse your hands before you eat food. Because if you don't do this, then just poured water over the hands. And then they went, you know, like this. And then that was it. If you don't do this, and then you eat with unclean hands, the food becomes unclean. And then you take that into your mouth and then into your body. And then you become unclean before God. And Jesus is like, that is nonsense. Not only is that not in the Bible, it doesn't even make sense. So in Mark 7, beginning in verse 6, Jesus, in response to that, says to these men, and now you can understand why, like, you know, maybe they don't like him. He says, well, did Isaiah the prophet prophesy of you hypocrites, he says, hundreds of years before you were even born. Back in the Old Testament, Jesus is saying Isaiah said something then about You. And what is it? He says, As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their what? Because it is the word of the day. Their heart is far from me, in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. Okay, but here's the question How does Jesus know that their hearts are far from God? Because Jesus is God. And so he's doing what only God can do. He's looking infallibly into the human heart, and he's going, Yeah. You guys, hearts, far from God. So that completes Mark's argument. But Jesus doesn't stop there on the heart. He keeps going. Like there's a crowd who hears all of this. He's like, yeah, come on, guys. I, I, I don't have other things to say. In verse 14, same chapter, it says, Jesus called the people who had witnessed all of this to him again, and he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand that there's nothing outside a person, that by going into him, meaning into his mouth and then into his belly, because that's the context for this, that can defile him before God religiously, ceremonially. You get the idea. But the things that come out of a person, okay, those are the things that defile them before God. Sermon finished. But the disciples don't understand the sermon that he just finished. It says that Mark says that when Jesus then left the crowd behind as the idea, and he enters into the house, he's left the people, and so now it's just a private audience with his disciples. They come to him and they ask him about the parable, this statement that he just made to the crowd outside, and he said to them, "Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see?" He says that whatever goes in to the stomach of a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart. The heart's the whole point. It enters not his heart, but his stomach. And then is later expelled. It's just the way the body works. In saying this, Mark tells us that he declared all foods clean. All of these these foods that have been declared, you know, pork sandwiches. Praise Jesus, right? Like, I mean, that's... I'm serious right now. Like, you know, I mean it's clean. It just goes into your stomach and then makes its way out. It doesn't defile you before the Lord. And then he explains further. Jesus says that what comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within. And then he gets real specific out of the heart of man. Come what? Because it's all of us. It's what we all do. It's like, it's, It's in here and we know it and we've experienced it and we've expressed it in various ways at times that come evil thoughts. You're like, you know, like you have a thought and you think, good grief, what in the world was that? Like it's surprising even to your own self at times. Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride. Oh, did you have to put that one in there? Foolishness. All these evil things come from within, that is to say, from the heart. And they are the things that defile a person before the Lord. Though as we'll see before we're done... There's forgiveness for all of these things, guys, but there's forgiveness for all of these things for those of us who are humble enough to go, yeah, that's in here, man. Like That's in my heart, and unfortunately, therefore then, it's in my life, and I can't fix it, and I can't undo it, can't change it. So, Jesus, here's my heart. Here it is. Your God, Jesus, is God. Do what I know only God can do. Guys, here's the deal. I want to ask two questions today. Question number one, we're talking about the hearts. Who or what are you letting into your heart? Question number two, who or what do you need to let out? That's got to get out. That needs to go. This needs to come. You get the idea because your heart, and Jesus has just explained this, is the most important thing about you. And my heart is the most important thing about me. Listen to what Solomon says about the heart in Proverbs 4 beginning in verse 20. He says, my son, be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. I want to stop there for a minute. This guy is writing a book of the Bible. So his words, his sayings are scripture. So when he's talking about his words and he's talking about his sayings, he's talking about the words and sayings of God himself. That's the idea. So he's speaking of the word of God. He says, my son, be attentive to the word of God, if you will, incline your ear to his sayings. Let them not escape from your sight and keep them where? Within your heart. There it is. Why? For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Stunningly valuable. Absolutely transformational. And then he says this, and it's not a suggestion. He commands us as God always does. He commands us to do things which are good. He says, keep or literally watch over your heart. How? with all vigilance. Like there are things in life that you watch over with all vigilance, you know? Like you watch over your investments with all vigilance, do you not? You watch over your sports teams with all vigilance. Come on. You watch over your kids with all vigilance, your marriage with all vigilance, your business with all vigilance, your friendships with all vigilance, some of us, your health with all vigilance. Like there are things that we're like, okay, this is an all vigilance thing. We just put that in that category. And he's going, yeah, let me tell you, category number one, and if you'll do this, everyone in all the other categories will be blessed. Watch over your heart with all vigilance for from it, he says, flow the springs of life or as the NIV says, and I I like this better, uh, for it is the wellspring of your life. What's the image? It's the image of a well. Yeah, I mean, that really doesn't play well with us. Why? Because, I mean, when we want water, we just walk over to the sink. You know, we turn it on. You know, we, we get our cup and we go to the refrigerator and we stick it in there. We wait an eternity while the cup gets full. We're turning up the volume on the TV from the other room. It's amazing how impatient we are. You know, filling up your car with gas. How many of you all like to stop to do that? Not just because you have to touch the nasty handle. I mean, just, it takes forever and it's expensive and inconvenient and you're like, oh, come on with the water already. You know what they had to do to get water? It's a little more onerous. Get your water jogger, walk out of the house, walk down the street, walk out of the village oftentimes, walk a little ways outside. Okay, set it down, blazing heat, drop the bucket, pull the bucket up, fill your jar, walk back to the village, walk back to the house, walk back inside, pour yourself a glass. I mean, the show's over at that point. Doesn't even matter what your football team, a game finished. Like, And here's what they all understood, that the health and the vitality and the life of every person in that village was directly connected to the viability of that well. When the water in that well was pure, when the water in that well was clean, it gave life and it gave health to the whole of the village. And when it was defiled, when it was spoiled, when it was poisoned, somehow, some way, it brought, what? Sickness and death to everyone in the village. Guess what they all did? They watched over it with all vigilance. There's a story in the Old Testament that part of the Bible that Mark's going, you got to get to know this piece. You really do. Like it's its all the Bible, like it's all the written word of God, but there's a story involving Jacob and he goes to a well and there's a rock over the top of the well and it's such a big rock that it took several men to move the rock. Like they would have to wait for like you know four or five guys to show up and then together they would roll the rock away. Now why would they put a rock on it that big? Because if it's just to keep stuff out of the well, you know, I mean like a piece of plywood could have done that. I think in part, they secured wells like that so that one person couldn't get into the well. If you were going to do something crazy enough to be disruptive for the whole village, you had to recruit three or four others who were crazy enough to do that with you. You get the idea? They guarded the well with all vigilance. Solomon's like, man, you know that well in that village? That's your heart in your life. So who or what do you need to let into your heart? Because it's, you know, it's not porn and it's not violence and it's not degrading, you know, music and entertainment. It's, it's, it's not, you know, advertising that comes to tell you to be satisfied with nothing, no matter what you have. It's none of those things, but he's already given us at least one of the answers to this question, and it's God's word. He's like, look, fill your heart with God's word. Deposit God's word into your heart. Treasure it up, he says elsewhere. In your heart, God's word, for it is itself a treasure. And he tells us, look, the words of God are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. So that's one answer. But what else? Because the Bible comes to us with at least one other thing, probably many other things, one I'm going to actually hit. And that is the Holy Spirit. Be full of the word and be filled with the Spirit. Listen to what Paul says, and don't miss the analogy in Ephesians 5. Beginning in verse 17, he says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We're like, okay, you're the apostle of the Lord. You're writing the word of the Lord. What is the will of the Lord? He's like, well, how about this one? Don't miss the analogy. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Like I went to college, I know that already. Didn't need to know that from here. But listen now, he's making an analogy. He says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But instead is the idea to be filled with, or really to be intoxicated with the Spirit. And when you're intoxicated, what does it affect? Just about everything. It affects your speech. It affects your decisions. It removes your inhibitions. Like if you're an introvert, you become an extrovert. If you're an extrovert, nobody wants to be around you, right? Like it's, it's too much. It's just too much. Put Go back in the cage. Like It affects your values, what you care about, how you treat people, how you spend your money. You wake up the next day with that receipt in your pocket. You're like, oh, crud. I really did buy the whole bar around. Like... Ouch. It affects the way that you walk, which in the Bible is a metaphor for life. It's something you do one step at a time, one moment at a time. Paul says, look, don't don't get drunk with wine. That's debauchery, but be filled or intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. And you're like, okay, well, so then how do I do that? Because I, I I know what it looks like to get drunk with wine, but what does it look like For me then to be filled with the Holy Spirit, because he's saying that I'm to be filled with the Holy Spirit to a place where like, it affects absolutely everything about me. And I, I think at least part of the answer, and here's where it begins, it begins with us waking up to the fact that in the Holy Spirit, what God is doing is he's not like sending us a text message from heaven. Hey, have a great day. I'll be watching from up here. He doesn't call us, you know, I just thought it'd be good for you to hear my voice today. You're like, why? What's coming today? And, you you know, like, I'm rooting for you. You Oh, thanks. He doesn't send us flowers with a nice card. Have a great day, Heavenly Father. You know, like, I'm not even going to say what is God. I'm going to say who is God offering through the presence, through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Guys, he's offering himself himself. And here's, I think, the mistake that we make. We talk all about the Father, and we talk all about the Son, and we don't talk about the Spirit at all. And we assume that we do have the Spirit. And listen, if you're a Christian, that is, in fact, evidence that the Spirit is in here, is it not? Because the Spirit himself, for you to become a Christian, has to wake you up from the dead and give you the very faith by which you embrace Jesus. But that's not where it ends. If that is, therefore, all that happens, if that's where it ends, why is Paul talking about be filled with the Spirit? And by the way, in the language the Greek construct, of it is such that it would say, maybe more accurately, be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an ongoing, constant thing. Why is it, if the Spirit's already here, who and He is, that the most ancient prayer in the church is, come Holy Spirit? God is, by His very nature, infinite. And that invites you into an understanding that therefore then there's always more. There's more of his love. There's more of his joy. There's more of his fruit toward us, in us, through us. Of what? Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Like there's, there's more of his power. There's more of his gifts. You're like, which one? Take one. They're all supernatural. Every one of them. Anything God does by his very nature is supernatural. By definition, any gift you have is a supernaturally given gift. And as I was talking about with our staff on Wednesday, and I realized yesterday this kind of works here too, so I threw it in. But, but God and James were told that, you know, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And he says in there that God is jealous of for your attention. He's jealous for you to experience him in a greater and then in a greater and then in a greater and then in a greater way. He's your father. He wants you to draw near and he will draw near to you. He's like, I want you to know that love. I want you to know that presence. I want you to know that. I want you to know all of that. I want you to know this power. I want you to be humbled and I want you to receive from me like I want you to have this, and I understand this as a dad. You know, So one of our kids, Haley, who is actually going to be here today, I don't know if she's here now, but she's either here now or at the next hour. Uh, She is going to be 23 in August, and she is one of the most delightful people on the planet. I was telling her last night, I get excited every time she's coming home, like I look forward to it all week. Haley's coming home, Haley's coming home. On the day, I wrote in my journal the day she arrived, Haley's going to be home today, exclamation point. Like, she's here, I think she might be leaving this afternoon, which is a bummer. I'm sad for a couple days when she goes, because she is awesome. Haley is like Mary Poppins, she is practically perfect in every way. And she has been for years, okay? But she has not always been that way. When she was born until she was, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years old, she was a terrorist, honestly, Haley. She she terrorized our home. You know, we had no category for that because Morgan was like the super easy child. Like if you just looked at her funny, she was crushed, you know. And so we thought we were the greatest parents in the world. And then Haley came along and if you said do this, she would not do it. And if you said don't do this, she would absolutely do it. And then we thought we're the worst parents in the world. Like just strong, determined, fiercely intelligent. We called her the word police because... She corrected every misstatement and, and corrected the grammar. And, and the really irritating thing is that she was almost always right, you know, because she's so smart. So this little bug living in our house, we sent her to school. We, for like the first week, we were thinking, oh, how long is this going to last, you know? And then we realized she's a model citizen at school. Straight A's from the beginning until the end. Never did she step out of line. No punishments. No nothing. Like she and then she would come home. And on the one hand, it's like that was a relief, you know. And then on the other hand, I'm like, huh, she can do it. I don't know what to think about that. But you couldn't tie the kid down, and yet she was honestly one of the cutest kids in the world. I, I think I got a picture of Haley from that era. Now, listen, now, you know, I've seen y'all's kids and they're all cute, but can we just agree? I mean, that's off the charts, right? So funny. And I I remember telling Beth and I, I said, I feel really guilty about this, but I like it when Haley gets sick because when she got sick, that was like one of the only times that she would stop moving and I could just hold her in my arms. Now, you know, she would snot on my shoulder and sneeze in my face, but It was worth it, you know, and I would just walk around the house with my precious little girl who I just was jealous for her attention, just to hold her, just to be with her. If she was sick, she would allow for that. If I did something she wanted me to do for her, she would allow for that. And so we would read together. She loves books. She, she read her like the first Harry Potter book. I think she read when she was probably about that age. Honestly, that's pretty crazy. So I'd read on with her, you know, night after night on the couch because I'd get a little cuddle time. That's what was in it for me. When she was like 12 or 13 years old, we were trying to figure out her age at this point. On Friday, I was talking with her. But um, I read The Whole Hobbit with her because it just I knew she would sit with me for hours on end. And it's a huge book. So I'm like, right on. This buys me a lot of time with my girl who was still hard to nail down at that point. And God's like, look, I want to be with you not just when you're sick. I I know there's a crisis. Okay. I want to be with you not just when you want something from me. I'm offering you myself, my presence and power, and my gifts, my love, my joy, all of these things. All of the time, will you simply humble yourself and open your hands and open your heart and surrender to whatever it is that I want to do in you? And that's a statement, isn't it? I think a lot of us avoid doing this because we're kind of comfortable with where we're at with God. I mean, maybe we haven't thought it through, but I mean, if you're thinking it through with me at this point, you're like, you know what, I've, I've created a relationship with God. I've created a relationship with God in which he's not asking more from me than I'm already kind of comfortable giving. It's going to be about this much of my time. It's going to be about this much of my money. It's going to be about this much of my emotional investment. We're going to do this. We're going to, you know what? I'm, I'm really happy. We've arrived, Lord, even though you're infinite. And all of this stuff that I'm protecting from you is nothing compared to you. It's all destined to pass away. God's like, really? What about me? It's either that or I think it's cynicism. We've been disappointed by God, we're hurt, we're angry. Maybe we haven't processed that consciously, but you're going, hmm, yeah, maybe that is my issue. And so I don't want to be with you, and I don't want to sit with you, and I'm not going to do what you want me to do, and I will not make room for you in my, and we all do that too. And the Lord's like, invite me in. Realize that you do not have all that there is to have of me, that there is infinitely more. Humble yourself before me. Open your hands and open your heart and say, God, what do you want to do? I got so many ticks of the clock here and that's it. They're all a gift from you. Fill me, Holy Spirit. Take me over. Let me enjoy your presence and power and love and let me be used by you through whatever gifting you choose to give. All right, so who or what do you need to let into your heart? God's word, God's spirit clearly make the list, but maybe you've got something else. If it's in alignment with the Bible, make room for it. But then secondly, who or what do you need to let out of your heart? Like if you gave me your heart and it was like a, you know, like a can, you know, and I could just set it on a table and get a can opener because I don't have a plug up here. So I'll just do it manually like a caveman, you know, like, and I just cranked that dude open, which would take longer than filling a glass with water. Would it not? It'd be like going to the well with my jar, you know, and, and you just kind of watched it as the lid starts to rise, you know, as you're cranking along, like, take a break. I'm getting carpal tunnel. I need a wrist brace. You know, finally, you know, I can just sort of push it back. And if I could look into your heart, which I cannot do, but God can do. We do not even see our hearts the way he does. He's pretty routinely coming and going, "Ah, Tom, let me show you something. I don't think you see, but if I could open it up and look in it, what's in there? that you would be better off without. That Jesus would be better off helping you get rid of. What do you need to let out? Listen to the list that Paul gives us, and it's not an exhaustive list. Like, your thing might not be on this list. Let the Spirit speak to you about whatever your thing is, but, but listen to the list because I think he covers a lot. In Ephesians 4, verse 31, Paul says, let all bitterness. Okay, now, listen, we just cranked the lid back, right? Is that in there? Who is it hurting? Let all bitterness and wrath, so that feels pretty fiery, and anger. Is that in there? And clamor and slander. What? Be put away with you along with all malice. Look, I don't have the power to do that. That's why it's still in there. Okay, but what do we just talk about? Because what we just talked about was letting the power in. Letting the person with the power in. Inviting the person with the power. Being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot live the Christian life in our power. It's not like he brings us a faith in Jesus and he gives us that faith and says, all right, now go gut it out. No, he's like, no, 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 I want to live in you. I want you daily to surrender and be filled by me and I will give you the power to do this and then this and then this and I won't dump it all on you at once. Thank the Lord. But I'm in this with you. I got to get some of this. I had bitterness. I got to let it go. And I don't have power to do that. Great. Jesus has that power. The Holy Spirit has the power, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. And then do what? Start doing the opposite. Be kind to one another. Like to people that you're not already kind to. That's the idea. Tender-hearted to people that you've got to strain to be tender-hearted toward. That's the point. It's supernatural. And how do you get it all out? Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. God's like, look, I'm just asking you to mimic what I've done for you in your life, and I'm not asking you to do it in your power or alone. I'm asking you to do it in the power of my Holy Spirit. Let me fill you. Let me empower you and hear and listen to this word that you might get rid of things by the power of the Holy Spirit that are poisoning your heart, which is the wellspring of, of your life. And the vehicle is that of forgiveness. So your heart is the most important thing about you. All right, well then who or what do you need to let in? Who or what do you need to let out? Because when Jesus, who is God, looks at me and he looks at you, he doesn't just see what's out here. I like the shirt. I don't like the shirt. You know, like whatever, you know, you should have tucked it in, Tom. Ryan tucked his in. Make him feel self-conscious about that, would you? No, he doesn't just see out here. He sees in here. And here's what he sees when he looks in here and in me and in you, and this is good. He sees that we need him. And the reason it's good is because he doesn't withhold himself. He's come and he's done everything. Everything to give himself to us, including suffering and dying on a cross, being put into a tomb and being raised from the dead so that all of our failures and all of the sickness in our heart that has manifested itself in sick ways in our lives might be erased and forgiven, covered by the blood of Jesus. He's like, let me, bring me your heart because I'm the healer. I'm the cleanser. I'm the purifier. Let's take the well and get all the poison out. Bring me your heart and let me do my work. And now fill your heart with my word and, and invite me in all my fullness to fill you daily. And let me give you the power to start letting stuff go through the vehicle of forgiveness. So I've got four questions and I'm done. Question number one is, will you bring your heart to Jesus? I love the last word. You ready? Today. You know, like maybe you've been dating Jesus been hanging out with Jesus. You've been investigating Jesus. And that's good. That's wonderful. We invite that. And that's a process that, you know, we're not trying to rush or whatever, but we do kind of want to go, you know, at some point you get married, like maybe this is your day where you go, yeah, I need him. I need that forgiveness. I need that. I need the Holy Spirit to live within me. I, I need to take my life and repurpose it and And do something that, you know, in the end matters for forever. Like, I'm looking for that, and and, and the one that I've been looking for is Jesus, and this is my day. And as soon as we're done, some of us will be up here, come up here, and we'll pray with you, we'll help you with that. Secondly, will you commit to filling your heart with His Word today? There's like no better way or no better day to do that. It's like, all right, you know what, I'm gonna commit today. I mean, you know, you're gonna kick the can down the road another week? Like, no. Why? Because his word, his words are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. You're like, I'm not sure exactly what all that means, but it sounds awesome and I want in. Thirdly, will you ask him to fill you with his spirit today? Say, Lord, you're infinite. I believe there is more, more love and power, more of your presence to enjoy, more gifts out there that I don't have. Give me yourself. And then lastly, who do you need to forgive? And I should have added the word today because that's the vehicle by which we let go of bitterness and wrath and anger and slander and malice and all of this stuff that does what? It just poisons the wellspring of our life. Our life. So what will you do today? Let's pray. Father, we praise you uh, that you look into our hearts um, and that even though you see them infallibly, far more exhaustively than we do, God, you have not run from us, but you have run to us. We are your precious children. Uh, We are the ones whose attention you seek and whose hearts you want to heal and fill and use. And so, Lord, I pray that you would draw us irresistibly to the beauty of that reality, the beauty of who you are and of all that you've done for us in Jesus. We thank you for God, who is Jesus, who is a man for mankind, offered a human life in the place of a bunch of broken humans, and who offered an infinitely valuable human life, for he is not just a man, but he is God, and so he is all-sufficient to cover over it all. So Lord, get out your, I don't know, your can opener. And crank open the lid of the can of our hearts today. Let us let you in, invite you in, welcome you in. Do your purifying work. Do your healing work. Do your cleansing work. Rid us of the poison and fill us with Yourself. And do all of this for Your great name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.